So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, Taylor. How's it going? It's going, man. We watched uh, some movies this week. We're covering three festivals at the same time. There's some Amazon Prime movies coming out that we're kind of excited to take our first look at. It's It's been a good week. How about you? It's been a good week here as well. Uh, yeah, good movies to talk about. A couple documentaries along with a fiction feature. Excited to dig into them. Yeah, well, let's start, as always, with those first impressions. First, with I'm Your Woman, starring Rachel Brosnan. Alrighty. This was your family's. I'm Terry, Cal's wife. Anyone can learn to shoot. But what you really need to figure out is what you'll do when it's real. Why did Art show me how to use a gun? I just thought you should be prepared for what comes next. What comes next? Michael, that was the trailer for I'm Your Woman, starring Rachel Brosnahan. What do you think? I think this looks promising. It looks conventional to me, but I'm digging some of the period detail set in the 70s, kind of a 70s noirish dramatic thriller of sorts. We don't talk about a lot of television on here, but I am a marvelous Mrs. Maisel fan. I like Rachel Brosnahan. I'm excited to see what she does in a film. I saw one movie by this director, Julia Hart, a few years ago called Miss Stevens with Timothy Chalamet and Lily Rabe, which I liked pretty well. Um, So I'm excited to see more from her. I know she made maybe a couple in the interim that I didn't see. I think it looks promising. What about you? Uh, A little bit less so. I I like you do like Rachel Brosnahan in um, the, the television show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I do think that it kind of went off the cliff. Uh, recently in Mm. in i think season three or four i don't remember which one it was Mm. uh here i'm seeing a little bit of exaggerated melodrama um some conventional looking digital cinematography with really good lighting not really anything that i'm super keen on um maybe the the plot and the character can bring me in um but this is not quite the first time big film um action that i was hoping for rachel brosnahan yeah, it certainly has a prestiginess to it that, uh, you know, I don't normally go for, but um, I would, I guess, of if I'm going to watch something that is kind of the of the prestige nature, this is probably something I'm more inclined to like that is in the noirish mode with an actress I like, you know, given the, the kind of movie it is, I think it's promising for me. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get on to Sylvie's Love. 
You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Can I walk you? Life's too short to waste time on things you don't absolutely love. But how do you know if you love something absolutely? I guess when it's the only thing that matters. The van got offered a gig in Paris. Come with us on tour. I'm afraid I can't. But I think you very well could be the next John Coltrane. What are you gonna be? If this is love... WNAT Television. Calling about the assistant producer position. Are you married? Yes. Hey. The producer's assistant's not the best job for a housewife. Why should I hire you? Because I didn't know that a Negro woman television producer even existed. And all my life, that is all I've ever wanted to be. It's been a long time since I felt the way that I do All right, we just watched the trailer for Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash. What do you think of this one? Um, I I could really just repeat myself. This is um that same stock kind of digital cinematography. Doesn't look bad. Doesn't really look that good or unique. Just kind of got that that flashy kind of almost TV feel to it. Um, even when they're out on the street at night. Unfortunately, uh, this is coming out December twenty fifth. It, it feels kind of like a movie that's going to be released on Christmas. You know, it's it's incredibly safe familiar i think we're about to talk about a movie that um we can both agree doesn't really take any risks and this kind of gives me the same vibe as that one how about you Mm. maybe a little more optimistic about it yeah i could use some of the same words i used to describe i'm your woman kind of a swoony 70s romantic melodrama which is a kind of cinema that i really like it does look like tv i would agree with that um kind of a if Bill Street could talk kind of look to it, it does look more saccharine than that movie for sure. I, I worry about that a little bit. But, you know, good romances, I think, are just a few and far between in American cinema these days. I kind of like to remain optimistic about them because they just don't come along very often. Um, so... Yeah, I like to think I'll give it a shot when it comes out. I don't think I mentioned the release date for I'm Your Love, which comes out on Prime Video on December 11th, and Sylvie's Love, like you said, out on Christmas. So, and that was I'm Your Woman, is December 11th. That's correct. This episode of Drink in the Movies is sponsored by Wild Gallery. Wild Gallery is owned and operated by Ray Donnelly. As many small businesses have had to do during COVID, Ray had to shut his physical store doors, but he's maintaining the same high-quality Native American art from the same distinguished artists as before. These are bold pop art pieces from artists that are in the Smithsonian. One of the featured artists had a piece used in David McKenzie's Hell or High Water. Whether you're just looking for a new piece of art to spice up your quarantine life or are shopping for a family member's Christmas present, the distinctive art offered by the Wild Gallery will not only make a memorable gift, but a lasting memory. Visit wild.gallery to find the perfect piece of Native American art for you. That's wild.gallery. You can just peruse or make your purchase today. 
Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. All right, well, let's get on to the Heartland International Film Festival title and San Diego International Film Festival title, The Outside Story, starring Brian Tyree Henry. Hey, hey, here you go. Number eight, extra guac, 15 bucks. It went up? Yeah, man. Avocados. And blame the cartels. out of my apartment. I repeat, I'm locked out of my apartment. Man down, call me back. My keys are right there, right there. Okay, I'm gonna need to see some ID. My, my license is in my apartment. No one's got keys for you? No. You just moved in? I've lived here for three years. Weird, I've never seen you before. Hey, it's Charles from Two Floors Down. Who? Your fellow building inhabitant, Charles. Isha's ex. Isha left you. It really doesn't mean anything. She cheated on me. Why did she cheat on you? I don't know. Well, that's not the end of the world. It feels like it. You ever been cheated on? Probably. All right. <laughs> Take it away. All right, Michael. This is a film um, in which Brian Tyree Henry puts on some socks and runs out to tip his delivery man, uh, unknowingly locking himself out of his apartment. And what ensues is about an hour and a half of what I can only describe as a very charming film with um, fun characters that don't really amount to too much. What do you think? I think I would agree with that. It is a charming film, also a fairly underwhelming one for we, for me one that i think will be probably pretty forgettable in the long run but just to build off what you said narratively brian tyree henry is a new yorker the film is set in the fall which fall in new york city that makes for a nice backdrop he's a video editor he's in a bit of a career rut he just went through a breakup that he uh sort of has the post breakup blues that he's dealing with um yeah i think this is a nicely crafted movie it feels small it feels very small to me and i really felt myself wanting this movie to take a few more risks than it did i think it plays all of its beats pretty safely but it's hard to actively dislike because i think it's heartfelt and charming like you said it's hard not to use that word repeatedly um yeah um what struck you as interesting here any anything in particular you really appreciated or did not care for um there's honestly nothing that i don't care for there are some moments of performance that i think are are startlingly weak compared to other moments from um like our main love interest here you see very different capacities of her acting where she's just completely taken you away and convinced you in a scene and then you 
have a hard time believing that this is the her reciting lines and not just her reading lines off of a page and others. Um, <clears throat> once again, it is truly charming. I, I think that what I like most about it is the moments that the screenplay cooks up between certain characters, whether it's, um, you know, him trying to talk himself out of a parking ticket and then figuring out as a screenwriter how to take that and turn it into a fun arc that's cute that kind of makes the the viewer think that something else might happen with this character so that you can approach from the other side with the ex-girlfriend or quote-unquote ex-girlfriend and, and actually have there be any level of intrigue when she comes back into the picture. Um, I think that without that arc, that whole, almost the whole film doesn't work, to be honest. The, uh, the ticket writing officer, um, played by an actress who I love, but I do not recall the name of. Yeah. Yeah. You, you used the word cute, and I would agree that feels like an appropriate adjective for the movie overall. Unfortunately, it's just not a word I tend to use for the movies I really end up loving in the long run. Um, I think there's just some, dramatic heft missing from the screenplay like i said this is primarily about a guy getting through a difficult breakup while also trying to kind of shake himself out of some career complacency i think it really doesn't figure very deep into uh what he's going through emotionally with regard to this breakup and i think like the core problem that this kind of hones in on is just not a very inspired problem for me we get this idea that he um was a little less interested in getting out of the house than his girlfriend was she was more interested in going to a party on her saturday night where he would whereas he would be more interested in staying home and ordering taken and kind of the contrivance of the movie is that he's forced to shake himself out of this habit by getting locked out of the apartment he's getting out into the world um something about just how minuscule that problem feels to me in relative to all the possibilities that cinema affords you just felt underwhelming to me that um the problem for this guy was that he didn't get out enough it just didn't do much for me i think i can understand that it it maybe hints at uh some of these other things he's going through whether it's just um uh this this career rut but i think it really fails to kind of connect the dots there i I think there's just there's just the material is just not really there for me yeah i i I would agree with just about everything you've said i i think that maybe where we differ um in taste is that this is essentially the bare minimum exceeded of what I want to see out of a, a directorial debut for a screenwriter and a director. Um, th- this is both his first feature film that he's directed and his first feature film that he's written. And what I see is a lot of promise and a lot of opportunity. Like you said, he doesn't really go to any of the more juicy places. Now, whether that's budget constraints for rewrites or if he just didn't conceive of something that was more unsafe i i can't really say but i 
I can say that as a viewer, I think that the way that he builds his characters over time and allows repetition of dialogue between them to take place, there's something there in the future that I'm I'm very interested in seeing this director um, come on and really find a, a stronger voice for his his storytelling. Normally, in these first directorial debuts, we see the same thing that we see here. I just watched Drunk Bus. I just watched Shit House. Both of those are directorial debuts. Guess what? Both of them are breakup films. There's something about that that is just constantly regurgitated. Most of the movies are bad in that constant regurgitation, but there's something here that I, I taste of promise. It's not just um, anything conventional. It, it's something subtle about how he can convey comedic dialogue with something underneath that is actually sadness for a character. I, I do think that this film is far too safe and the deep sadness that should be present in the film is kind of absent and jollily glossed over, whether it's um, one of our side characters, uh, Wino Mother, demanding that she play piano in the middle of the day um, with, with a fury, or if it's, um, you know, him trying to process um, his girlfriend cheating on him and him breaking up with her. There's just something that isn't quite self-serious there, but there. I, I don't know. I think that there's talent here in the writer-director that um, I, I don't want to overlook. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, one thread that felt a little bit like a missed opportunity to me was the fact that he gets locked out of his apartment while under a deadline. He makes um, obituary videos, like in memorial in memoriam videos for Turner Classic Movies, while also making this documentary that he's been making for five years, and we get the sense he's not making much progress on it anymore. He's on this deadline to write a in memoriam or edit an in memoriam video for a celebrity who is perhaps about to pass away. I really was hoping that that might give the movie a little bit of urgency. You could see this, you know, having a little bit of a kind of uh, on the clock kind of feel to it. I feel like that nothing really materializes out of that thread that is kind of a um, conspicuous part of the screenplay. I thought that was a little odd. Um, I agree. But, uh, and I think there's other moments in, in the film itself where there's a timer that comes up and then mm -hmm. it ends up not mattering. Whether it's mm -hmm. getting back to get his keys um, when he's out with with the woman who writes him a ticket or moving the car for the ticket. There's just all these kind of fake little timelines that don't end up giving any true sense of urgency to the pulse of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brian Ty Tyree Henry, great. You know, how could you not like watching this guy for under an hour and a half? I think this is this is a relatively short movie. I forget the exact run time, but it's under an hour and a half, I believe. Um, it's just a really... Um, affable guy you do just want to hang out with this dude uh whether it's outside or inside the apartment i could go either way um uh, i am i am a, a fan of him and think he is a solid kind of focal point for the film i entirely agree and i i think that that in the end is what kind of keeps the film above water um i have already mentioned the word charming i'll use it again Brian has a certain charm about him. He can kind of pause 
genre as well as pause stakes and just make a singular moment by itself. And there's there's not too many actors that I think of, and I just know that they can kind of stop the world or the the cinematic world around them with a look and and an exchange of dialogue. But that is what ends up working here is really well wrought dialogue exchanges with perfect comedic casting um, in Brian Tyree Henry. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that I have too much else here. Do you have other thoughts that uh, you're eager um, to... I, I will to? say that, that I think that he, uh, the director, writer, that is, let me look up his name. I haven't been saying it because I was intimidated, but this is too mm. much avoidance. So it, I think it's Casimir Nazkowski. And um, I, I think that the one thing that really cements the word charm here is how he brings the neighborhood to life while Brian mm. is locked out. Whether it is the kids at the park with the water balloons, or it is the sweet neighbor who asks him what size shoe he is, or if it's the, um, you know, uh, threesome happening upstairs on level four that he has to keep ringing. There's something about how he invites his character around the neighborhood to explore it that that brings it to life in a really, really loving, heartfelt way. Um, that it is also slightly unconventional that I don't see coming out of a lot of directorial debuts this year. I think that I'm north of of 35, and, and this is one of the more really positive, eager tones that is a little bit self-reflective. And and I do think that there's there's something um, deeper in the well for this artist to to suss out and bring to us. Yeah, yeah, it is funny how some movies can be set in a place like New York, and yet they don't necessarily feel like New York movies because the place just isn't really brought to life. But this definitely does feel like a New York movie, and that's in details like the parking tickets that you can imagine New Yorkers are constantly uh, on 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 edge about and uh, getting up on the, the roof to throw water balloons or getting on the fire escape to try to get into the apartment through a window, the park, like you mentioned. Yeah, the place does come to life. Um, and there are some little interstitial shots of the city itself, just kind of the skyline that I think, yeah, I would agree, definitely um, open the film up a little bit. And nice. don't forget about the deli and the sandwiches. <laughs> and and food. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to ask you a really hard question. What's your favorite scene? What was my favorite scene? Um, well, this is a little, this is not terribly specific, but there's a little bit of a shift in the cinematography during flashbacks to earlier points in, uh, the relationship between Brian Tyree Henry's character and his girlfriend, where mm -hmm. they're getting to know each other at a party for the first time. I don't know that I have a particular one of those since they're all kind of similar and that's kind of the point, but I do think those are nice scenes, um, especially because they do feel a little bit more like a memory and that's nicely reflected in the change in cinematography. It's a little grainy or a little hazier. I thought those were nicely handled. What about you? Um, yeah, I'll just choose something that I thought was charming and, and interesting. Um, he goes on top of the roof with a young girl who lives on level three, just above him. 
and they are peeking out over the rooftop together. And, and there's like an overhead apple crane um, shot almost looking down directly where it, it's kind of a half and half split on the screen. And they're looking down at the police officer, um, the UPS delivery guy and kids um, with that had gotten him with water balloons. And he tries to throw the water balloon at the kids, hits the police officer. It's it's. A really cool looking, just abstractly shot that has great, you know, story logistics happening in it. So I'll go with that one. Good pick. All right. On to MLK FBI. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We are free at last. After Dr. King gave his famous March on Washington speech, Wednesday, August 28, 1963, in a memo dated the 30th of August, no later than that, the second person in the FBI, may have been Sullivan, sends a urgent memo in which he says, after the March on Washington, it's clear that Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America. And we have to use every resource at our disposal to destroy him. All right, Michael, MLK FBI. This is a a film festival triple for us. This is playing not only at the San Diego International Film Festival, but the Double Exposure Investigative Film Festival and the Heartland International Film Festival. What did you think about Sam Pollard's MLK FBI? Well, I'll maybe quickly mention, I think it's the second documentary from him that we've talked about in a matter of just a few weeks, I think, if I remember correctly. I think he co-directed the documentary Mr. Soul that we talked about not too long ago. I don't know if that episode is out yet or not. I think it is. Um, MLK FBI, yeah, like you said, doing the festival circuit, the... It's kind of all in the name. This is about the FBI's uh, surveillance of, of MLK Jr. throughout the civil rights era and particularly their efforts to um, collect dirt on him in hopes of destroying his reputation. I'm mostly positive on this, Doc. Um, maybe it's just how popular it has been on the festival circuit that I had higher hopes um but i feel still i I still think it's solid it's um made primarily from archival material both footage and and photos that i think are really well stitched together and i think there's some some really interesting and disturbing um things we hear about in this talk that we can talk about more specifically but yeah i'm 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 positive on it what about you yeah i'm i'm positive on it as a piece i'm a little bit mixed on some of the voiceover stuff, especially as the film progresses, there's a lot of subjectivity um, that, that comes into frame. Whereas when we're starting, it's, it's really great. Like just assertions of fact and presenting the documents or the recordings that the facts are based on. And then once we get to this crucial kind of climax moment where it's been revealed to us and we've hit the timeline period where Martin Luther King Jr. has had um, his sexual engagements with other women besides his wife recorded and that they're threatening to release it. That There's some voiceovers from 
people that I don't really think should be voicing over this documentary. And it goes in, in a way that I don't think is um, as as good as it was starting out as as investigative journalism. Right. Like if, if they would have just stuck to the facts and not the opinions a little bit more or perhaps opinions of Clarence Jones more, right? Because mm. he was actually there the whole time. So whenever he was giving voiceover, it was really delicately worded and careful and interesting. And I, I think that when they go to people like James Comey um, near the end and another woman that I don't remember the name of, um, and they're reflecting on like society today, I, I just don't think that that has any coherence to the the sheer substance of what we find here. Yeah. On the topic of the talking heads, it was interesting to me to see a documentary do what I don't think I've seen any other documentary do, which is have talking heads over archival material and put their names on screen when they talk, but not say who they are. If you don't happen to know these people's names, they're just names. They're just people talking about uh, what happened. I thought that was curious um i don't know that that was a great idea like why why would you not list the qualifications of whoever is talking i think for the like the cleanliness of the image it's kind of nice but it's like why would you put just the name i thought that was odd i don't know that i appreciate that i completely agree clarence jones is like the one person that i don't think that that's necessary for if you're at all familiar with um, Martin Luther King, mm. because he is kind of the go-to living historian that was with Martin almost all those times, um, mm. and at SCPC, but like not listing James Comey's qualifications. I mean, he he is a little bit of the zeitgeist right now, um, but all those other folks that I don't recall the names of. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Completely agree. Yeah, sometimes I wasn't sure if they were historians if they had worked in the fbi sometimes i was getting that sense that these were insiders finally like coming out with this because maybe they felt compelled to talk about it that was i don't know i don't think that helped anything but yeah, th- there was one moment near the end where it flashes on screen and there's this guy that says retired cia agent it doesn't say when he was in the cia and it doesn't say if he even worked on the case mm. i thought that was the yeah. most absurd thing like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, like, what, why should I listen to what you have to say in regard to this? It, it, it ends up feeling like this ends up being more crafted for the agenda of what, what Pollard wants to convey rather than a true summation based on fact of what occurred. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I, yeah, I think I'm with you there. Um, I think I like some of the, the, some of the topics that, covers you know we're a film podcast we're interested in film i sort of liked this aspect of it that looks at how um the public perception of fbi over the decades has kind of been informed by images of it in film and television um you know little excerpts for movies that i've never heard of with some bizarre titles um about fbi agents and their them being sort of the heroes that solve crimes and that kind of thing some of the, i thought that was kind of interesting i agree yeah, a, a nice kind of thread that's uh, tangential to what we're learning about uh, the, the FBI spying on him. Okay, I thought that was cool. Um, any other aspects you you liked or or didn't care for? Um, well, the, I mean, there's a lot to like about the archival footage, the editing choices. Um, I, I will say that 
when the film began, the, the first thing that really, truly worried me is that it, it said that it was written by someone and it was written by two people. That is always deeply concerning to me when I start what what is proposed to be an investigative documentary, knowing that it's been written by people um, automatically kind of puts the skeptic in me like, oh, okay, well, was this written like as a historical document trying to remove any bias and acknowledging it? Or, or is it written with bias to convey a message? And by the end, I, I unfortunately do think that, that they are biased and do want to convey a specific message rather than collate all the facts and data and, and let us make a, a decision based on that, which I, I think ends up being, unfortunately, the real detriment of the film, having two writers um, that are not just focused on presenting fact, but rather f- focused on kind of presenting how to think about what they're showing you. Yeah, I think I could understand that concern, especially in documentaries where like it's a fly on the wall style of documentary it's like how is this in any way non-fiction if you if it was conceived on paper in advance i guess i don't know that i would have had so much of the same concern here just because it's so strictly archival material like i would think you have to have an outline in 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 some I fashion or another agree about the archival footage but to me when I'm seeing the visuals, I'm not thinking the writers wrote that. I'm thinking Pollard and the editor assembled that. When I'm hearing people, that's when I get worried that the writers are are really showing up. And that's what concerns me because that's, I think, where the most bias comes into the... That is where all the bias lives in the entire film, is from certain people talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I, yeah, I... I just gave them the benefit of the doubt, I suppose, that what people were asked and what they said was unscripted, but that there has to be some kind of structure to a something made out of, of archival material. Um, but yeah, I think I understand the, the concern. Yeah, I, I do, you know, think that this is a, a good documentary. Um, and, and it raises some very interesting points about the ethics of the recordings that will come out in 2027 um, that were sealed. Um, I, I don't, I, I believe that we hear Comey say himself that he doesn't know the entire, the entirety of what's sealed um, and n- not knowing, but assuming that it is these infamous recordings of Martin Luther King Jr. with people besides his wife having sexual engagements um it is interesting as a society to reflect on if that stuff should be released just like anything else or not um and i i think that it is complex and i don't propose to have the answer yeah yeah i liked some of the detail about uh hoover's shaping of the institution the fbi over time uh like some of the dialogue or, or lines about how he was honing in specifically on conservative white frat dudes of a particular size. You're like, oh, my God, that is a nightmare no matter what the institution is. <laughs> um, you know, that that's pretty striking. And some of the talk about just how radically uh, – how radical of a 180 perception of MLK Jr. and Hoover – you know what that has what that has looked like over time but there's that stat about over like 
I'm going to misquote it, but it's like over 50% of people approved of Hooper at the time and like 10 to 15% approved of MLK Jr. And that is just, that is so the opposite of what, you know, anybody would conceive of now. That, that was striking, I guess, even though it's maybe not necessarily surprising. Um, it still is, um, striking, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Popularity polling is, is always, um, an interesting science and psychology to, to observe. Um, you mentioned earlier kind of the, the cut to illustrations of these random films with very obscure titles, um, romanticizing the FBI. Can't help but, but think about last year, July. I think it was July watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, with those TV serials and, and watching Leonardo DiCaprio, um, play some of those roles and just thinking about like what the content was on television, um, and what was actually happening at this time. Because I, I do think one, one problem that it has is it doesn't really show what America was like. It just shows what America was doing. Um, which I think is, is one of the other small problems that I have with, with, a film that I, I do like. I want to be clear on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a a lot more about MLK himself, and a lot of footage of MLK himself, which is great. But yeah, less. There's some, but less of the people, the American people, and their kind of um, response to the era. Um, I remember uh, a shot of one lady in particular who believed he went to a communist training school or something like and that, that bonnet she was wearing good lord yeah yeah you, you could kind of imagine her maybe being at home watching those shows or movies rooting for the, the white fbi dudes um but yeah a little some of that was interesting not not maybe not enough of that i agree um i, I guess what do you think this documentary does that the many preceding MLK documentaries and, and pieces um, haven't conveyed? It's a fair question. Maybe not a whole lot. I just don't know that I'll ever tire of watching archival footage like this. There is just something about the man himself and his demeanor and watching it in the context of uh, a government institution's efforts to destroy him in really disturbing ways that I think is pretty affecting. I think while you certainly could review or read a article about this in 15 minutes and probably get the exact same information I do think there is some emotional power to associating his temperament and his persona and who he was with these really, you know, uh, gross efforts to destroy him. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but what about you? Um, Well, I I think that I, I want to agree with you, but when I reflect on the material that I see um, in this documentary specifically, I, I do think that there's kind of a a bit of a problem in that the MLK that we get to know in the first half of the film doesn't really continue to show up after those allegations, um, or not allegations, after they've recorded him having sex with other women and he knows about it. 
we do not, that I'm aware of, go hear him again. We'd been hearing speeches from him and in interactions with him. And, and then it just kind of goes silent. We see a lot of silent cinematography, archival footage of him. Uh, we see archival footage of other folks. We, we have a brief, um, moment with him on a podium and his wife on a podium talking about that stuff. But we don't really hear how that was. A, we don't hear him talk in a way that kind of conveys what was going on in the background at any point that I can recall. And I think that there's just there's a lot of little problems I think I have with the editing and, and what is in the material, which is why I, I end up not being quite so positive on this as I, I really thought I was going to go into it by since it's headlining so many festivals. Are you saying you wish you had like heard more from him about what he realized was going on? Like you? No, I, I wish that I heard more material after he knew what was going on. After he knew that those recordings were out, I'd like to have heard him talk, whether it's at a local level or giving speeches more, just to kind of compare in the beginning when he, mm. when that's not happening to the later when that is happening and just see if there's more yoke being born on his shoulders. If there's more um, solitariness, if he's, if he's more, you know, beleaguered or not, mm. it would just be an interesting yeah. composition that I, I think really they, they missed out on. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I, I was, you know, it is striking to, hear that he realized at some point that he was being spied on and that they were trying to encourage him to commit suicide and then to see him go on and make one of the more radical speeches he ever made which uh you know was to criticize the war in vietnam and which most people thought would jeopardize the cause he was initially all about mm-hmm. um i guess i did think that was illuminating in that it shows while he might have been very spooked by what he realized by the fact that he, that he knew he was being watched, it didn't deter him to make one of his more controversial statements in his time. Um, so no, knowing that in the context of what he knew about his being watched was interesting. I I agree that that is one of the few, but I, I, I just, Wish there was more, right? With with these historical figures, especially ones that are gone too soon, there's always. I wish there was more. Um, yeah. I I do think that some of the digital cinematography um, that that you can tell is very new, where they're kind of weaving the tape through all the turnstiles. Mm. It, it doesn't quite fit the project. Um, there, there's definitely kind of a, a glaring difference between all this archival footage and then super crisp digital cinematography showing you, you know, analog. <laughs> For sure. I, I w- would agree with that. You could imagine those being where they just couldn't find the right clip to fill in that gap. They're like, I'll put the digital tape back yeah. in there. Yeah, I would agree. Um, is there anything deeper about, about the film that you want to get into? Uh, maybe just the note it ends on. I thought the conclusion was a little odd to me or maybe a little bit misguided eventually we see the faces of the talking heads mm-hmm. and it feels like an like an unveiling or something to me in a way that i don't think was intended but i think that there's kind of an in, inadvertent weirdness to that 
And the question put to them at that point is, you know, when you find out what's in these tapes, is it going to change what you think of MLK Jr.? Which I think is just um, counterproductive to what the whole point of the documentary is, which is that it was just wrong that, that, that these were made in the first place. And it just kind of like inadvertently encourages you to wonder what might be in the tapes. I think that was maybe, I think that had the, the wrong effect for, I, for me at least. I completely agree. And that, that is part of my point about having two writers and, you know, these voices talking over, giving opinions instead of just presenting facts. I, I, in these types of studies, I just want facts. I, I, if there is going to be emotion, I want the emotion to be from people that were there. That way, it, it is historically true because it, it's a reflection of someone who lived it and of mm. someone who knows the consequences. It's not someone who has nothing to do with it commenting and, and making, you, you know, claims that really have no basis of interest outside of you chose to put them in the film. And I, I think that many of the people that they chose to put the voices of in this film do not encourage a, a higher quality interaction if you would have just left it silent there i think it still would have been fine and you you could have taken the facts that they mention put it in white text on the screen and i'd have a better experience i hear you i hear you um well i'm going to ask you that infamous question what's your favorite shot of the movie michael oh gosh that's tough in a movie that is uh so much about the archival uh material and footage and whatnot um gosh do you have anything off the top of your head while i ponder for a minute or no i i do i i forget what his wife's name is but there there is a scene that i think is absolutely just kind of devastating and fascinating at the same time and she's on the podium talking about how she knows him better than anyone else, probably. And watching her eyes and how she speaks and and the the thoughts that are, are going in her head, I there's just there's so much juiciness, emotionality, sincerity, rawness to to that shot. Um, it's just archival footage, but I I I think I'm going to remember that moment and watching her speak about her husband um, in that capacity following the allegations of him being adulterous. And I'm, I'm probably never going to forget it. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. The one that's coming to mind is uh, not particularly one that's easy to uh, uh, describe i guess or not one that you'll probably easily remember it's just of one of the shots where mlk is getting ready to be interviewed by a reporter reporter he's got a suit and a fedora on and i remember just seeing that particular shot with this one of many that are just like it and just realizing how young he was it might have just said that he was only like 27 or at the time and like i just forget that sometimes how young he was doing so much of this that's incredible um, yeah, I think I remember what you're talking about when he had his mustache shaved thinner and a really more thin. pointed V. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I loosely remember what you're talking about. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Let's follow up the very positive, uplifting and upbeat uh, documentary MLK FBI with something even more upbeat. 76 days. Come on.
Michael, 76 days playing Heartland International Film Festival and the Double Exposure Investigative Film Festival. This is a documentary um, about what happened inside of a hospital in Wuhan during coronavirus during a brief range of time that I don't remember the exact dates of. Uh, What did you think about this? I enjoyed this documentary or enjoyed maybe isn't the right word, but I did respond well to it i i suppose um it's sort of shot in a fly on the wall fashion no talking heads no narration it is just kind of on the ground raw footage of what unfolded inside different hospitals across wuhan um i i did think it was pretty affecting and extremely harrowing at times but i was a little surprised just by the um relief it also offered it times in the form of people just being kind and compassionate with each other this opens i think on on a very harrowing note with this woman a healthcare worker just wailing as her father is being carried out on a gurney carried out of a hospital and he's just passed away and that just sends shivers down your spine it's so disturbing i was prepared for that i guess for like 90 minutes i was like oh my god i don't know that i want this and I think um, it is not quite that harrowing in its entirety, but devastating nonetheless. So, um, yeah, a, a, a hard watch in a certain way, but but I'm on board with this doc. What about you? Yeah, harrowing's a good word. Like, the outside story is charming. I don't think you can really describe 76 days without the word harrowing. Um, I think that I probably dislike this film a little bit more than everyone else does. Um, Particularly that introductory moment, um, you know, it's jarring. And in film, there there is, especially documentary film, there is a level of, is this morally right? And I think when I watched this film, it struck me a lot more than normal that... um, you know, I didn't quite feel right watching some of this because I, I mean, I hope that they got releases for this stuff, but I, I just, I can't, I I can't imagine going to someone with a clipboard and asking them to sign for me to share a photo of you grieving your dying father live. Uh, and that troubles me still. Um, and I, I, I'd love to look into the legalities of shooting this film and, and what exactly the release structure was, because there, there's a dementia patient that is particularly the spine of the film, and he's very charming by the end. But I, I don't feel morally or ethically clear on watching this film, um, knowing, you know, that he might not be aware of who he even was or what he was doing in those those images that are now being shared with the world. So I, I have a hard time with this one. Yeah. I, I, I could kind of see that. I guess I 
did feel like it was pretty tactfully handled for the most part. Maybe it was because I feel like so many of the healthcare workers, you don't get a good, you don't get a great sense for who any of the individuals are, or at least I didn't. They're so covered up for the the entirety of the movie. The dementia patient is not some of the patients or not. You see, you see their faces and, um, the, the, and they're distinctive. You'll remember faces, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know that I ever felt too much like it was like an invasion of, of privacy or, or anything like that. I guess I felt like the intentions were like this had really good intentions and, and was sensitive about this, this really difficult subject matter. I mean, I, I think I, I think I see your point, but, um, I don't know. I, I guess I would feel like that's just something about documents, documentaries about suffering in general, that they probably don't go around and ask every, you know, impoverished person you might see in a documentary about poverty, whether or not they're on screen, um, just whether or not they might be totally coherent or not. It's, it's kind of about whether or not you sense the intent is right. And if they're exploiting these people, I didn't feel like this would, this was exploiting the, the dementia patient. I felt like this was really kind of, kind of compassionate towards him in a way. I think by the end it is compassionate, but I I all I can say is is my my personal morals were were definitely challenged during this viewing watching deeply personal end of life grief moments um for people and just not really feeling comfortable with that. It's not that I don't want to see this material it's that I, if I see this material, I want it to be something that the person is wholly aware of and okay with sharing. And I just never got any sense from this documentary that everything was, to put it, you know, simply above board. I, I don't know if that girl that is grieving on the street um, as she's handed her mother's uh, bracelet ever signed that waiver. You know, there's just, there's weird stuff that I don't normally have to think about with documentaries that I found myself really struggling with here. Yeah, it's fair. I think that one's fair game. It's in a public space. I think people, I think documentarians are, uh, fully allowed to shoot in public spaces. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure there's something like that, um, in hospitals as well, probably in, in yeah. China that I'm just not aware of, but as someone who's Western, I, I just, I have a little bit of a problem with it, but, Let's not spend an hour talking about that. Um, yep. The material itself is, you know, um, pretty tough at times. There's moments where there's a door being pounded on and you haven't been outside that door yet. And they open it and there's just a sea of people waiting to be admitted. And you hear, um, well, rather we read through subtitles that they were telling, you know, a group of 150 people probably that eight can come in right now um, and only girls. And then they make an exception for one guy. I forget what exactly occurs, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's tough. There, there's moments of positivity, but there's, um, there's, there's really just a lot of harrowing footage that H word again. Yeah. For sure. Um, I, I did like that it, I didn't feel like it was imposing too much of a narrative on top of this footage or trying to shape an arc out of material that just doesn't have that much of an arc. It's, it feels like just raw footage in a way. And yet there is some kind of filmmaking on display. There's this kind of visual motif it develops with 
with hands and the hands of patients as they as they swell up and healthcare workers holding the hands of patients and just that little um the emphasis on on hands as a really meaningful point of contact when you are supposed to be distancing yourself from it for everybody and when when you are a threat to each other i think was smart and, and affecting for me i think that was a nice little filmmaking flourish i guess um also how he focuses in on those inflated um gloves with the, mm-hmm. the faces drawn on them to kind of you know cement that motif of hands yeah exactly and it's predominantly shot inside the hospital itself but those moments where we do step outside the hospital and just get a look at the city itself it just has that apocalyptic feel to it where it's like a zombie movie the place is just deserted and um you know those are real really brief moments but i do think they really contextualize the 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 um the suffering within the hospital and kind of the chaos within there versus the the quiet outside is is kind of striking um but but very kind of subtly done yeah yeah there there is that composition drawn you're you're right where the moments mostly that we're exposed to in that hospital you know when there's like 12 people inside one or 12 nurses and, and a doctor inside one room as a someone is unable to breathe trying to be resuscitated and we go outside and we see one person waiting to show that they paid for something digitally with their phone to grab a sealed bag off of an apple crate and and walk down the street where it's just it's a very um it's a striking dynamic between those two images yeah yeah absolutely um Whenever there's something like this in the world, like COVID, you just expect the deluge of documentaries about it, right? Whether it's in Wuhan or in the U.S., we'll get, you know, a bounty of them within the U.S. There's no doubt about it. Do you feel like this is a must-see or do you feel like folks should wait until this plays out? I always am sort of curious, like, how do you handle so many documentaries on a, on a given subject that hasn't even like concluded yet. We're still living this thing. Do you think this is worthwhile? Um, I don't think this is worthwhile as a COVID documentary. I think if anything, this is worthwhile as, you know, like a, a how ch- current contemporary Chinese hospitals handle epidemics maybe, but I don't think that, that really a COVID coronavirus documentary that's made now, like you mentioned, or any point before now is really in any way holistic. And unless what you want is a snapshot documentary of a place and a time, I think you always have to wait for an event to kind of be over or for someone's life to be nearing its end in order to really illustrate the the full story of the impact, right? Because this is just about people with it. This isn't about the economy and people suffering that don't have COVID. This isn't about people committing suicide due to mental health um, from being separated during COVID. This is not handling so many of the other various broad topics, right? The, in the end, a, a true holistic documentary is likely going to be something like a 10-hour special on Netflix 
or a 60 Minutes that lasts two weeks or a Nova program that lasts two weeks or, uh, you know, a Frontline from PBS that lasts two weeks, something like that, because there's just so much. This doesn't touch Italy. This doesn't touch Africa, right? Like, there's so much that's not here. So um, I think it's good in what it handles um, if you're not morally bothered by it like i am but i i don't think that this is by any means the go-to coronavirus documentary yeah yeah i think i would agree i think uh we are it is not yet possible to make the comprehensive covid documentary or docu-series which you're right that will probably have to be it, it'll have to be like ken burns right who does like 20 hours or something um on a given yeah what, what are his subject. called they're not masterpieces Gosh. Um. Yeah, is there a word for what for for his style? Oh, it's Ken Burns presents. That's what it is. Yeah. So it's exactly. going to be Ken Burns presents the world's response to coronavirus or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I think I would agree that it, that it'll be hard to know which ones are the ones that are essential versus not so essential. I guess I do appreciate this one for just how it kind of reveals the common humanity of us across borders you know i feel like um wuhan can feel to me like like a black box in a way and there's so much antagonism towards it also from from trump and so many people and to just see that they're they suffer in the same way that we do they're trying to tackle it in similar ways that healthcare workers are here too i think there's value in it in watching it right now just to see that regardless of where you are you suffer the same way from this thing um so i i, I appreciate it on those terms um but uh yeah the ken burns one we'll do that at a later date uh maybe M- maybe don't <laughs> yeah don't probably not actually <laughs> <laughs> um so se- 76 days obviously indicates that it covers only 76 days and then kind of ends um one problem here that I, I do have is I think that at certain points the documentary and the characters in it become performative. Did that ever feel like something that you were watching was performative or, or did it seem pretty sincere for you all the way through? I did not get that sense. I thought if if anything the more likely complaint that this document documentary might get is that you don't get enough of a sense of the healthcare workers in particular who are so clothed up that you don't really i won't remember anybody in particular from this movie or i think if that. you speak mandarin and can read it maybe the hmm. in- insignias that they're writing on their their um ppe maybe allows you to hmm. track them better yeah yeah um yeah i don't know i, I can't say i got the sense that anyone was um trying to be someone they weren't or or deceive me or anything like that um uh what struck you as performative um a lot of the really close-up dialogue exchanges between patients and nurses you know we Mm. kind of get that that bed bedside table like almost upward angle cinematography um looking at two faces or their hands as you mentioned and then we get the subtitles that we're reading o- over what they're saying. And th- there's just something about it that feels performative. I won't say that it's insincere, but it, there's 
there's definitely dialogue exchanges that I don't remember specifically right now where I just did not get the sense that that was not non-performative, we'll say. <laughs> you know, and that's the, yeah. the famous problem of when people are on camera, they're, are they really themselves? That surprises me, to be honest. Like, I don't like the, the hand holding and stuff. I don't know how you how you fake that. I mean, I guess Not maybe some people. The mm. dialogue that they mm. have during the hand holding. Right. So during those scenes where people are holding hands, you're getting that bedside table cinematography. And then in the background, they're having a conversation. And as we read those subtitles, that's where I see a little bit of. Uh, of what I'll say is performative. What isn't, it's not unsincere. I just get the sense that it's performative dialogue in some ways. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I guess, I guess it's the optimist in me that I just like to think that it's good. It's good bedside manner to be hopeful and, and compassionate. Um, I, I suppose it is, it is a front. Maybe they're on extra good behavior for, the cameras, I, I, I suppose that is possible. Um, I don't know that I ever got the sense I was being too duped or anything, but fair enough. Yeah, I, I don't think I was being duped. Like I said, I don't think that what they said was insincere. I just think it had a level of performativeness, which mm. is that problem. When people are part of a documentary, are they really acting like themselves or an embellished version that is performative? Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Favorite scenes? Anything that, uh, anything um, specific that you'll, that will really stick with you? I, I honestly don't have a single thing. I could try to stretch, but I don't think this film is really that good looking and no scene really kind of cements itself as a favorite for me. How about you? I definitely do. There is one man who I think we only see the one time who is a patient. He's in a bed at the hospital and he has this giant grapefruit that he's about to tear into. And mm. it's a, it's a big ass grapefruit. And it's just like overhead shot as he just rips into it. And it's like, at that moment, all that he mattered, all that matters to him right now is this grapefruit and it's going to be delicious. And there's good sound there as he's crunching into it. Um, you know, just another kind of example of, I think, the documentary recognizing how the little things matter when you're surrounded by so much pain. A little bit of pleasure goes so far. Um, I like that detail. All right. So instead of a favorite scene, I will say my favorite thing about this documentary, which you remind me of now is the sound editing or sound design, however that works out. I thought that it was very, very crisp, clear, um, great audio quality for what had to be a very hectic shooting environment. So mm. there we go. My favorite thing was the sound design. <laughs> Love it. Good pick. Good pick. Um, yeah, well, that's the end of the episode for this week. And we will be back next week with a Halloween episode, Michael. Spooky things ahead. What what uh what are the horror titles we're going to be talking about? We have Bong Joon Ho's The Host, Creature Feature. We have Tony Scott's Hunger, along with Dario Argento's debut, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Is that right? That's a mouthful. The Bird with that, the Crystal I, Plumage. Yeah, I believe that's right. And if it's not right, they can just type in Crystal Plumage. They'll figure it out. That's the one. It's the only movie with 
bird and crystal plumage in its title. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.